Let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's word found in Psalm 113. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy up out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we have come to that section of the Psalter that we call the Hallelujah Psalms. Uh, last time we began looking at them, they come at the end of book of the uh, book of the Psalter in book five. And as we've considered these things, as you look at these, you begin to see a common theme that um, is there, particularly as it begins in the fifth book in Psalm 107. The psalmist says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And then we see the beginning of the Hallelujah Psalms in chapters 111 through 117. Um, and I mentioned um, a couple of times ago, um, my old seminary professor, Dr. Palmer Robertson, has included in those Hallelujah Psalms, um, Psalm 107, particularly because it gives begins with giving of thanks. But those groupings of Psalms that we know as the Hallelujah Psalms are Psalms 111 through 117. And they are called Hallelujah Psalms because they have that phrase, Hallelujah, Praise ye the Lord. That word hallelujah or praise is noted there in verse 1 of chapter 111. It's noted there in verse 1 of chapter 112. And here in 113 it begins with praise ye the Lord. And these are particularly noted because they are psalms that were sung at the Passover meal. There were certain portions of them sung by Christ and his disciples at the Last Supper. And we oftentimes will sing from selections of this in our observance of the Lord's Supper. But as we consider this tonight, we find here in Psalm 113, the psalmist calling and exhorting the people to give praise unto the Lord. We see the exhortation there. In verses 1 through 3, the exhortation to praise. We see in verses 4 and 5, the reason for praise drawn from the majesty of God there in verses 4 through 5. The third point we want to look at is reasons for praise drawn from his goodness and mercy. And then fourth and finally, we see the establishment of a holy seed in verse 9. And so as we consider this tonight, we draw our thoughts to 
this exhortation that the psalmist gives to give praise unto the Lord. Now these selections of hallelujah psalms would be sung primarily um, the observance of Passover or other feast days. But particularly the call is to the people of God publicly to give praise unto the Lord. But I want you to notice there in verse 1, there's a repetition there. Three times, praise ye the Lord, praise, O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. I think it's important to note there, and we've seen this before, and some of these themes are, are repetitious, but we, don't, we have not seen the Hallelujah Psalms anywhere else except here uh, in the last book. But as we consider that call to give praise unto God, it is noted three times that we are to give praise unto the Lord. If, you're, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah comes before the temple, comes at a critical time in the life of Israel, and he's, he's praying before the Lord, he's worshiping the Lord, and he says, holy, holy, holy. Three times he notes the holiness of God, and here three, not, three times the call is to praise the Lord. And so this draws importance to it because the name of God indeed is to be praised. The exhortation is to give praise to God because indeed he is holy. And so as, we, as he begins and calls the people to give praise to God, we see that this God is exalted in majesty, that this God is lifted high above all the earth. And so all of God's perfections, all of God's attributes are revealed to us and we see that as he begins to call us to the importance of this high and holy duty. There is no greater joy, there is no greater happiness for the believer than to give his life wholly to the praise of God. As we have seen this repeated again and again in a number of these psalms, called to give praise to God, I think it's a work, uh, noteworthy to notice that in giving praise to God, that is the highest duty of the people of God. We can think of other duties that we have as Christians. We have duties... Um, that entail other things, but the giving of praise unto God is the highest duty that we have as, as Christians. And as we begin this, I think it's important to note here that the emphasis in praising the Lord, in giving praise to Jehovah, that is the, the name of God that is used there, that word Lord in its um, uppercase letters, uh, was not a word that was used in the Old Testament. I think it's uh, noteworthy that there were three consonants that were used in the Old Testament to describe the name of God. And it's come down to this word that we have in our English text, Lord or Jehovah, the God who rules over heaven and earth. And it is to that God, not to any other God, that we give praise. And so the question sometimes comes, um, 
when we sing the Psalms, and I, I wanted to touch on this just briefly tonight. I don't want to spend a lot of time on here. But as we think about singing primarily the songs and Psalms and worship, I think it's particularly um, helpful for us to understand because this often comes up in conversation. Why do we sing the Psalms, which are in the Old Testament worship, and nothing is ever mentioned in the name of Christ? But actually, to the contrary, the Psalms are filled with the worship of Christ. The Psalms are filled with the worship of this God who is to be praised. And we will note that particularly as we move our way through the psalm. And so this God who is the one who redeems us, this God who indeed is high and exalted, this God who is our God is a triune God. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the servants of God, the people of God, are called to find their enjoyment, to find their happiness, to find the richness of their joy in serving this God who has shown his love and his mercy unto his people. What greater way God has shown his mercy and his grace unto us than the giving of his only begotten son. So here we find that we are to bless the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so as he begins there, he says that we are to give praise unto God at all times from now and for how long? Forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. We find here that there is not one place in all of creation that has not seen the glory and the majesty of this God that is to be praised. I think we often miss that. We, we are ready to say, well, the heathen can't see this God. Well, of course, the heathen see this God every day. The one who rejects God, the atheist who, who turns against him, the fool, says in his heart there is no God because he doesn't want to recognize that God is the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting God. His praise is endless. There is not one region of this world in which homage is not given to the Lord our God. When Moses came before the Lord and the Lord said to Moses, go and tell the people, go and tell the Egyptians to deliver my people. What did Moses say? He says, well, who do I tell him? He sent me. And he simply says, you tell him that I am sent you. There was no word in the Old Testament to describe this God. And so by saying, I am, he says that I was, I am, and I will always be God. He was saying to Moses that God has always existed, that there is no time, that God has not existed. 
And so we are to give praise to God continually. And notice his name is to be praised from now and forevermore. That will be our great work in heaven. We will have all eternity to give praise unto God. And so that will be a thing that does not come to an end. The sacraments will come to an end in heaven. The, the call to public worship as we know it will end when we come to heaven. But you know what? The continual praise of God will go on forever and ever and ever. Never to end. And so this God whose name is blessed is a God who has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no ending. And so his name is to be praised forever and ever. And so we consider the praise of our God, the call to give praise unto God. But secondly, not only are we exhorted to give praise to God, but we find in verses 4 through 5 that the reason that we are to praise him is because of his glory and his majesty. The psalmist begins there in verse 4 by saying, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory is above the heavens. Here we find that the Lord dwells high and holy, that his name indeed shows that he is a holy and majestic God. When we consider the attributes of God and, and the Psalms are, are filled with it, there's a sense in which we cannot fully understand this God and yet the scriptures reveal to us that this God is high, that he is exalted, that he is above all nations. And we have seen the theme of the kingship of the Lord in previous Psalms, particularly uh, there in the fourth book. But here in the fifth book, as the Psalms are coming to the conclusion of all things, and they find their culmination in the uh, worship of the people of God, we find that the Lord is exalted above every nation. That there is not one nation that the Lord is not exalted high above. And so he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. His glory is above the heavens. And here the psalmist describes that his glory, his majesty is seen for all the world. As he dwells on high, here's a metaphor that describes that God is holy. And that because he is holy, he is more excellent, he is more glorious, he is more majestic than any other thing in all of his creation. As you think about the majesty and the glory of God, it's a beautiful thing that we cannot even fully understand or grasp. As you think about a, a uh, king or a, a magistrate in the world, whom we look to and, and see all of the, the grandeur and beauty of that, it doesn't describe what the psalmist describes here. But his glory, his name is above all nations and the heavens. 
There is not one king who is higher than the Lord. There is not one magistrate. There is not one ruler who stands above the Lord. For he alone, Jehovah, is king of all the earth. And his glory outshines all his creation. And the psalmist begins to reflect upon the majesty of the Lord by saying, who is like unto the Lord our God? To behold the things that are in heaven, the things that are in earth. And here he begins to describe just briefly the, this idea of God's creation. The way in which God has created all things to reflect his glory. But the psalmist here reminds us that God is the one who dwells on high. That he is the one who has created heaven and earth. But Notice here, and I think this is an important thing to note as we come to the third point. The reasons for this praise of God is not only because of his majesty, which is high and holy. But we see... His goodness and his mercy reflected there in verses 6 through 8. This is particularly important for us to understand. Who is like unto the Lord our God? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven. And the things that are in the earth. Isn't it amazing that this God who is high and holy. This God who is far removed from us. This God who is um, transcendent is the same God who condescends to the nations, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven, the things that are in the earth. This word humbling here is that, that sense of condescending, this thing sense of lowering himself. How could a great and glorious God, how could a great and majestic God who is so holy, so infinitely high, lower himself to us? And yet that's what this sense of he, him humbling himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Some would say, why would this God even care? Some would say he doesn't care what happens. To us. And yet the psalmist says he condescends. He literally lowers himself. When you come before King. I, I experienced a little bit of this. In the time that I lived in, in Scotland. And also in Canada. You come before the presence of, of a sovereign. You don't just walk in. And, and begin to shake hands. And begin to have a. A. Um, conversation but there's a sense in which you walk in and you bow before them and even in Asian culture they understand this idea of condescending to their their uh, parents or to those who have higher authority than them and yet here this God comes and lowers himself to us this God who has been highly exalted this God who is king of all the earth comes to lower himself to those whom he has created 
that he might observe, that he might see, that he might consider all the things within his creation. And so we see here in this call to praise that he considers the poor and the oppressed. That's really the theme of this psalm. That he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. The Son of God, as Paul describes, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, has come and condescended to us in our low and helpless estate. And we've looked at this before, and I trust that this is familiar to you, and it should be, but those words there found in Philippians chapter 3, where, or in chapter 2, excuse me, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death upon the cross and that humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest act of humiliation that is the greatest and highest act of his humiliation as he submits to the father as he submits to the father to come as a sacrifice the greatest need of all of humanity is not education it is not politics. It is not good government. The greatest need of all of humanity is to be reconciled to a God whom we have offended. And the Lord Jesus Christ selflessly, the Lord Jesus Christ humbly comes as the sin bearer and condescends to us. This God who is exalted humbles himself, the psalmist says, bows himself low to, this, to those upon the earth, to the various parts of his creation. Notice in his condescension, in his lowering of himself, he lowers himself so that he might raise up the poor out of the dust that he might lift the needy up out of the dunghill. The language that the psalmist uses here describes God lowering himself so that he might lift up those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who are without hope. And this idea of being poor doesn't signify the idea of him only going to those who have no monetary means. That's not the sense of poor. But the sense of poor is those who have no provision to raise themselves up, 
to the needy who have no ability to bring themselves up out of that dunghill. And here the psalmist is describing the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ in raising up out of the ash heap of life, out of the dustbin of sin, out of the dunghill of our sinful existence, lifting us up and raising us up so that he might make us set as princes, even with the princes of his people. He raises us up that he might make us kings and priests. God's holiness inclines him to honor and bless those who are humble and pure and lowly in heart. I draw your attention back to Luke chapter 1. Because there in Luke chapter 1, in uh, verses 46 and 55, we won't look at all of that. But this is something to go back and, and consider and think about. There in Mary's song of praise, as we see the foretelling of the birth of the Messiah, Mary says, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Then he says, and then it says in verse 50, that his mercy is upon them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud. He hath put down the mighty and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. And then it describes here Mary expressing the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, indeed, who is high and holy, condescends to her in her low estate. Verse 52, he's put down the mighty from their seats, exalted them of what? Low degree. He hath filled the hungry and has sent the rich away empty. This expression of sending the rich away empty is this thought that those who find themselves trusting in their own righteousness, those trusting in their own strength are sent away. But those who are helpless, those who are weak, those who are needy and poor have no other provision other than to look to this one who humbles himself. But as the Lord stoops down to raise them up, he raises them up to be mighty men and women. He raises them up to make them kings and priests. He raises them up so that by faith, they who look to the Lord Jesus Christ receive honor and glory. 
And as we consider here the, the thought of the psalmist, how this God in his infinite mercy raises up the poor and the needy out of the dunghill, for he himself has tasted death for us. As we saw this morning there from Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the dunghill when he went down into the grave for three days and three nights. And Jesus Christ took upon himself our hell, our dunghill, that he might raise us up. And then finally, we see that we are called to give praise to this God who indeed is majestic, to this God who is filled with goodness and mercy, because he is the God who will establish for himself a holy seed. As he raises up the poor, as he raises up the needy, and makes them princes, it says he makes the barren woman to keep house, to be a joyful mother of children. Wait a minute. How is a barren woman able to keep house? How is a barren woman able to be the joyful mother of children? She cannot have children. And yet the picture here is of this merciful and gracious God who condescends that he might raise up a people. It's it, this picture of God's compassion on his people. It's a picture of the covenant of God that he would bring out of humanity a people to live in union with him. As you go back to that picture there of in uh, Genesis chapter 17, the picture of Abraham and Sarah. Remember Sarah's response when the Lord came to her and said, you were going to have a child in your old age? She laughed. She laughed because she could not have a child. And how did she go about trying to find a child for Abraham? She did what would be carnally wrong. She went and, and sought to, to give a child through his um, his maid, his servant. And yet God promised to Sarah that he would open her womb and that he would bring forth a child. And it is that child that came from her womb that is the picture of that holy seed that God establishes for every generation. It is a picture of God's saving work among his people. I, I, want, I want us to understand this because I think it's difficult, particularly in our age, to understand the, the nature of the covenant. We don't have time to go into all of that. But as you look back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, Thou shalt not call her Sarai, but Sarah. And I will bless her, 
and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. It says, Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him who is a hundred years old? And Sarah says, I'm 90 years of old age. I don't have the strength to bear a child. Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And so there in verse 19, Isaac, meaning he who laughs, is a picture for the one who doubts that God will bring joy unto his people. That he will preserve not a physical seed. I want us to, to understand that more and more. Uh, baptism is a picture of a spiritual seed. It's not a picture that everybody that receives the application of water is automatically saved. But it is the picture that God will save a holy seed for how long? For eternity. To show that from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And so God extends his mercy and grace to the loveless. God extends his mercy and grace to the unlovely. God extends his mercy and grace to those who are unlovable. To those who have no dignity. To those who have no privilege. He condescends to us in, to them in his grace. So that his people might give worship and praise unto him. God, out of his mercy and grace, regards even the lowliest of men with providential care. We see Joseph rising from the dungeon to do what? To sit before a king. David is exalted from his sheep herding days to the throne of Israel. Sarah rejoices as the mother of him in whom the promised seed shall come. Rachel and Hannah are filled with maternal joy. There is nothing that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot do, but out of his grace and mercy he has indeed lowered himself that he might fill his house with a holy seed. And so the picture here of a house, of a house that has a holy seed that might give its praise and its worship unto God. This barren woman keeping a house in the Hebrew expression literally means one who keeps house. And particularly to mothers here tonight, it is a 
high and holy duty to keep house. But I know as being the oldest of five, it is not always easy to keep house. But in keeping house, you are raising your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And that is indeed a holy task. It is far greater than what the world wants to admit. Oh, you're just a housewife. No, you are not just a housewife. You are a daughter of Sarah. You are a child of Abraham. Your children will rise up one day and call you blessed. When the Lord brings us up out of the dunghill of sin, the dust of death, he raises us up. We might have glory and honor. He raises us up we might give praise unto him. And so if you've experienced his grace, if you have found the Lord Jesus Christ condescending and lifting you up, then you with all the people of God can say, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. What greater expression of praise and adoration than to consider that this Jesus, who is high and lifted up, raises us up, that we might give glory and praise unto our God. Oh, saints of God, let us think upon this psalm. Let us meditate upon this psalm that we might fully understand the depth of the mercy and the goodness of God. Oh, how indeed glorious he is, how gracious he is, and how we need to give praise unto him who out of his mercy calls us unto himself. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do give thee thanks for thy wonderful mercy and goodness unto us. We thank thee that you have remembered us in our low and helpless estate. That thou hast condescended to us as children of Adam. That you might raise us up. And we give thee glory and honor. We praise thee and thank thee. You have indeed lowered thyself to us. That we might receive honor. And glory. What a glorious privilege it is for us who are children of Adam to become the sons and daughters of the living God. Oh Lord, teach us to praise thee. Teach us to think upon these things. Call us to this high and holy purpose to give our praise unto this God who indeed is worthy. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.